Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend of mine asked if I would record myself reading one of my novels as something they would find comforting and familiar in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be reading to you from Perishables, the first book in my five-book urban fantasy and vampire series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka FalstaffBooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Perishables link. That goes to Amazon. Thanks. Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams. I'm going to read to you from Perishables, the first book of the Withrow Chronicles, a five-book urban fantasy and vampire series set in North Carolina that I completed last year. It's published by Falstaff Books, as in falstaffbooks.com, F-A-L-S-T-A-F-F books.com. I'm very proud of this series. A reader and longtime friend asked if I would be willing to read it as audio segments that they could listen to in what is a pretty unusual time in our society, the COVID-19 pandemic and the practice of social distancing that we're all trying to engage in in order to limit the spread of the disease. So I am delighted to read to you and I hope that you enjoy this. You're very likely going to hear some of the background sounds of my own life and I hope that that makes it seem like we are closer to each other in space and time than we might actually be. A couple of notes, I'm going to do very little editing of this audio, so it's going to be pretty rough. If I fumble something, I'm probably just going to leave it in. That's the way it is. If I need a sip of water, I'm just going to leave it in. That's the way it is. I would rather have that organic experience of the two of us being together while I read to you than try to make it sound polished and professional the way that an audiobook would. If you enjoy the story, but you think to yourself, wow, I really wish somebody better than he is, were reading it to me, then Perishables is also available as an audiobook from audible.com. Again, this is a series that's been completed after Perishables. There are four more books. My publisher has asked me not to read the rest of them. So I'll be reading you Perishables and then we'll see where this goes from there. I'm coming to you from the room where I write, which my husband and I call the magic room. It's where my altar is. It's where he does yoga. It's where we can listen to music. It's where we can escape from the animals. It's where we can just sort of be away from the world. And that felt like the perfect place to engage in this particular activity. As I say, I'm going to read to you from Perishables, book one of the Withrow Chronicles. Perishables, part one, the vampire. When the zombies came, I was at a potluck for my neighborhood association. Odd, isn't it? For all sorts of reasons, not just that I'm a vampire. It's true, though, being there when the zombies showed up. I was ten minutes' walk from my place down at the Reinholds five-bed, four-bath McMansion. Gods, but I hate that house. When they moved in, we didn't have a neighborhood association to stop them from constructing that vinyl-sided monstrosity, and no sooner had they dropped the last box in their front hall than they'd begun agitating to start one so they could make sure their place stayed the biggest house in the entire development. Typical mortals. Some of the more bothered types went and talked to lawyers or talked to the city, or in the case of Mr. Jones Magnum, the only person who's been here so long, even I, have reason to fear his attentions. Talked to the city in the presence of a lawyer, and eventually, 
Everyone who cared shoved their hands in their pockets and slunk back up their drives in silent resignation. The Reinholtz knew how the game was played and immediately began campaigning for best neighbors ever. With gift baskets and mown lawns and good candy on Halloween, they whittled away just enough of the resentment against them that they got a neighborhood association started without being its first victims. By New Year 2002, it was a done deal. Franklin, not Frank, Reinhold, was elected chair of the neighborhood association with a three-member rotating board to keep the Reinholds on a leash. Thus began their benevolent dictatorship of our neighborhood. The neighborhood association's authority, I should note, does not extend to my yard. Oh, technically it does, but Mary Lou Reinhold always somehow seems to flinch when she tries to look me in the eye on my own turf. Every once in a while, she'll come around and try to tell me one thing or another through the screen door, but she always makes it fast and leaves faster. Franklin, not Frank, won't even show up. He can't handle it. He's a wuss. The deal is, one of the rules imposed on the Reinholds, really on Mary Lou, because we all know Franklin, not Frank, is not the brains in that operation, is that whenever the Neighborhood Association considers a new restriction affecting a current homeowner's existing property, then the homeowner has to be notified before that measure can be considered. The first time I actually met Mary Lou Reinhold was for that very reason, about four months after the association started. Thirty minutes after sunset, I'd heard a ring at my doorbell. I remember it took me a minute to figure out that it was, in fact, the doorbell. No one had rung my doorbell in years, not even on Halloween. I turned the lights on like anybody else, but eventually my place acquired whatever psychic stain puts people of a mind to ignore it and move on. My guess is, I turned the porch lights on a little too late, and I leave them on a lot too late, and I'm never out mowing my lawn, and people notice the little stuff like that. People don't notice the house that always stays the same, so it fades into the background and they eventually learn to ignore the house where the dogs yap all day and the kids are always screaming, but they notice the house that has a vibe of being just slightly off. A house that feels and looks too empty stands out like an open grave. Anyway, the doorbell rang, so I walked downstairs and peeked out the peephole, and I could see Mary Lou standing there on the front porch with her lips pursed and her eyebrows knit together. She looked just as pissed as all get out, like how dare I not answer her, and I figured she was a missionary or some other kind of lowlife. I flung my door open so hard the hinges squealed, and at the same time hit the whole bank of switches in the foyer, so that the porch, front hall, front stairs, and walkway were all suddenly flooded with the brightest, whitest light possible. A vampire never gets tired of seeing surprise in a human's eyes. Mr. Uh, she fumbled for a moment and I made a show of study in her face while she did. I wanted to remember her, but I also wanted her, whoever she was, to know that I remembered her. Surrette. I leaned my frame against the door and the floor creaked under me. I'll say it. I'm not afraid to. I'm a great big fat guy. I'm middling tall, about six feet if I remember correctly, but I weigh in somewhere around 350. I'd been out the night before and just woke up, so I was in my black trench coat and wearing the boots to give me a little lift, and my thick black hair was pointed 18 directions at once because I hadn't hit the shower yet, and she just stared and stammered. Mr. Uh, Surette, I said again, with her Surette, and I don't want to... And I don't want no damn Bibles or newsletters or what the hell ever to so get the hell off my land. I slammed the door shut and flipped all the lights back off with a smoothly reversed pinwheel sweep of the same arm. Mary Lou was left standing there just as blind as a bat. 
I could still see her out there as I stomped upstairs to get out of my club clothes and into something more reasonable, like the bath. And I smiled to myself because I could smell that she was a little bit afraid. That's how I came to be a member of the Neighborhood Association's board. It was early. Some people were probably just getting home from work. Others were probably out on their porches enjoying the April evening. By whatever means, from whatever place, someone heard that exchange, and the next month I got a note stuck in the screen door by an anonymous neighbor. A resolution to restrict the weight of dogs allowed as pets in the neighborhood had failed, and I had been elected to the association's board in absentia. The dog thing was probably what Mary Lou came by to talk about. I've got a Doberman named Smiles. He weighs 150 pounds because I feed him some of my own blood once a week. Then I have to go to town on my when I have to go to town on my own or when I leave him out front for the day to guard the place, I leave him on a chain that's too big for a large man to grasp in one hand because that's the only chain Smiles hasn't broken yet. That got my attention. So I took the position on the board. What the hell, you know? Even we, especially we, can act on a whim, and that was mine in that moment. Being on the board turned out to be pretty low impact. Once every six months, I went to a potluck at the Reinholds damned house, and we'd have a semblance of a meeting. I'd walk Smiles up there, no lead, I'd hate to see the leash that would work on him if he needed one, and drop him off in the Reinholds' fenced backyard. He would spend the entire evening sitting on their back porch watching me through their series of French doors, ignoring their Jack Russell named Killer. Killer usually just barked until he passed out. The night the zombies showed up was the night of our spring meeting. It promised to be a pretty dull affair. The autumn meetings are always the ones where somebody gets pissed because their neighbor isn't raking enough for their liking, or otherwise shitting the donuts, and somebody needs to throw a hissy fit over it. Spring, on the other hand, is easy going. Spring is when they're all dusting off that old landscaping software and talking about maybe this year they'll actually build those garden beds. It's a time when they imagine everything will be exactly the way each of them individually wants things to be all the time. As such, it usually involves nothing more froth than a lot of sitting around munching on stale cheese balls and avoiding Franklin, not Frank's, world-famous jelly beef loaf. Don't ask. I don't even know what jelly beef loaf is. I asked one time and all I got in return was, Oh, uh, <laughs> think of it as a kind of sausage. Franklin has this weird vocal tick he only displays when I directly question something. It always starts with this half-hearted chuckle and then he avoids giving me a straight answer. That particular spring, it was, it was remarkably warm. Global warming has finally caught up with us, I guess, and we'd not had a single flake of snow the whole winter. Raleigh, North Carolina isn't exactly in the Alps, but we're used to seeing a little winter weather. Not so that year, and we'd spent the first half of March with daytime highs in the 80s. As it was warm the night of the meeting, I'd made do with some old jeans and a bright t-shirt with the logo of the 1982 World's Fair on it. It was the sort of too normal thing I like to use to blend in but leave people a little wobbly at the same time. Me and Smiles went up the street at an easy pace. I was bringing homemade biscuits and a batch of ambrosia salad. I love to cook, though I'm not particularly good at it. What tends to surprise most of my fellow kind is that I also love to eat. Most of us can't keep food down, our bodies reject it outright, and it just comes back out. But my maker was smarter, was a smarter one than most, so she made me eat early and often to teach me how to keep it in long enough to fool folks. I was, as you might expect, not one to shy away from an ample meal in life, and so I was glad to take up eating as a hobby in unlife. 
I might never lose another ounce of weight in all the time I spend on this earth, but at least I can eat for hours and never gain an ounce either. It's a small comfort, but with us, every sensation counts. When I got to the Reinholds place, I skipped ringing the doorbell and just walked smiles right on around to the fenced backyard. The moment my hand touched the latch on their gate, Killer went ballistic. Mary Lou knew by the sound that I must have arrived and came out on the back porch to greet us. She took one look at Killer and her shoulders sagged in a quiet sigh. For the first time in a long time, I thought I detected something human in Mary Lou's body language, but then the Stepford programming kicked back in and she smiled as best she could. Withrow, she said, trying to purr and coming out sounding wrong. So glad you could make it. I'm sure you're very busy. Oh yeah, I responded, the ambrosia and the plate of biscuits cradled in my arms. Smiles sat by my feet and sniffed the air audibly in Mary Lou's direction. Been working on a new manuscript. That's nice, she intoned, and then she turned and walked back inside, leaving the doors hanging open. She couldn't even handle that much small talk with me. It was nothing new. A thought sometimes occurred to me in those moments when Mary Lou so visibly bristled at interaction with me. What if it wasn't just that I'd pissed her off that time on my porch? What if Mary Lou was one of those people who can just tell when something isn't right? What if every time I spoke she got those tingles up her spine that said, that thing is not a human being? There are vampires who believe that sort of sixth sense is out there, and folks whose great-great-great-grandfathers lived in one of our towns and somewhere along the line figured things out, and now, generations later, they have scattered descendants who can simply tell through some genetic memory or otherwise inherited gift that something isn't right about us. Me, I don't know what to think about that. I don't explicitly consider it impossible. I'm a vampire. I know human beings having something like a gut feeling about us is way down the list of crazy-ass things that can happen. But I've never known anyone for whom the possibility was a real concern. Mary Lou had made me start to give it more thought, though, and for all that my presence clearly made her a little unhappy, I have to say the feeling was mutual. About the manuscript thing, I'm a painter. Officially, my grandfather was the painter. Officially, I'm just an heir who releases the occasional found work and burns the proceeds to fund an utterly failed attempt at a career as a novelist. It's a shitty cover if you care what people think, but I don't care what people think. Mostly. Sometimes I care a lot. Pride is usually what gets us in the end, all of us, human or otherwise. The rest of the board was there already, and Franklin was busy talking sports with Kathy Sams and Herb Watanabe. Franklin isn't a sports buff, and neither is Herb beyond the usual water-cooler talk, but Kathy can't get her head out of it. Kathy played on the women's basketball team for one of the local colleges back in the day, and she's a bigger sports nut than anyone you can think of. When I walked in, she was busy haranguing Herb and Franklin over their picks for an office pool in the basketball tournament. Why the hell did you put Montana in as going to the suites? Have you ever watched Montana play? Every year they field the ten guys in the whole state who are over six feet and not busy throwing bales of hay across a field somewhere. This year they just got lucky. That's what I heard coming from the living room. Herb Watanabe was trying to respond, but Kathy was fed up with trying to explain it to him. Kathy officially considered the rest of us, who ranged from Herb in the office because letting the boss take a few bucks from him was a way to fit in, to me, who couldn't care less without bursting a vessel from the effort, to be lost causes. There was, she had said one time over, dressing, over dessert, something wrong with people who are so disconnected from their communities. Kathy's team at college had been good, very good. But this was before ESPN was giving a damn about women's sports. I don't have to be a sports fan to know that women get a lot more coverage these days, and that's a good thing. But Kathy was pretty bitter. 
She'd won a national championship, but no one she met had ever recognized her name. Kathy and Herb had become, over time, the only reasons I didn't walk from the board, once the novelty of sticking it to the Reinholds wore off. Well, okay, that's not true. The reason I didn't walk was because I still enjoyed sticking it to them, even after it wasn't new anymore. Eventually, I would have gotten tired of that, though. Probably. Kathy and Herb, on the other hand, they're good folks. They joined the board in part, I have come to realize, because they wanted to keep an eye on busybodies like the Reinholds, but in part because they also thought the HOA thing had potential. They were just people like anybody else, suspended in mid-air between a healthy dislike for pointless bureaucracy and sincere optimism about their efforts. I genuinely had no problem with them once I got to know them. I didn't exactly start sending them fruit baskets every Christmas, but I had no reason to distrust them, and couldn't manufacture a good reason to ignore them if I saw them out when I was walking smiles, so I guess I have to say I liked them. That concludes the first segment of Perishables Part 1, The Vampire. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. The theme music is Plucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution license at ccmixter.org.